We ready to get back into the book of Revelation? Like to just conclude what we didn't quite get to in the morning session. And then we'll move on to Sardis and Philadelphia. And you might notice that we will skip over Laodicea. And in fact, Sardis and Philadelphia, I'm going to try and uh, go a little bit more rapidly in order to leave more time for chapters 4 and 5. That's something of the goal that I've had for this afternoon. Uh, the first session we'll get into chapter, or this session we'll get into chapter 4, and then our next session we'll complete 4 and hopefully get into chap- or, yeah, chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. The reason we're skipping Laodicea is uh, the plan is tomorrow morning in church, I'm going to do it for the worship time, and then we'll... Do something for the second worship hour. Probably chapter 6. I'm not implying anything. (laughs) No comment. That's between you and the Lord. How you apply the teaching. We saw at the church of Thyatira, we looked at the circumstances of the church. We looked at the correspondent or the description of the one that is corresponding with them, speaking to them, and we saw that in verse 18. We also saw a complaint that was very, very, or compliment rather, I get that wrong every time, There were some very good things going on in the church at Thyatira, and then the complaint, which was quite extensive, in fact, more extensive than probably any other church, because of the seriousness of the situation, seriousness of the problem, the Jezebel that was prominent there. And we were talking about a correction, and I believe that's where we left off, wasn't it? 24 and 25. No, this, uh, this is what we want to look at. Beginning in verse 24. Uh, we didn't look at that. So in the text, beginning in verse 25, Nevertheless, or wait a minute, that's the wrong... Yeah, that, nevertheless... No, 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, uh, referring to what was mentioned before, this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. So there is definitely satanic influence, not only in the church, but in the entire area. Uh, There are faithful ones, as we saw in the compliment, and there are some that are not holding to these deep things. But the implication is there's others that are. Deep things of Satan, as they call them, so-called, I guess, I place no other burden on you. So, uh, 
the correction begins there. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Kind of a mild, actually, uh, uh, correction, not as severe as you might even expect, which is interesting. And that is followed by the challenge in 26 through 29, the rest of the uh, letter to the uh, church at Thyatira. And he who overcomes, again, as we've been emphasizing, an overcomer, the one that uh, is able to see his way through the problems in the church and overcome, resist the temptation. He who keeps my deeds until the end, an encouragement to perseverance like some of the churches were complimented. To him I will give authority over the nations. That's a tremendous promise. The fulfillment of that we can correlate with a lot of other passages. We won't get into them. In fact, I'm going to move a little bit more rapidly here in the last couple of churches that we'll look at in order to have the time to get to chapter 4. But uh, let me expand at least on this promise. This, this is a promise of rulership, co-rulership, authority uh, in the millennial kingdom. This is a specific promise that is promised to those that are faithful in the church age. And there's uh, a few of them in the, uh, the New Testament. And there are also promises in terms of uh, Old Testament, in terms of the kingdom. So, ruling with Christ is a tremendous privilege. So, those that are overcomers, that's a promise. And I think it's a promise that's available to you and I as well. As we overcome, this is applicable by way of application. Uh, We want to rule with Christ as well. And I think part of what determines that In fact, in large measure, what determines the positions that we will occupy in the millennial kingdom is the faithfulness that we exhibit in this church age. Uh, One of the things available that we'll see when we get to the kingdom that Christ is going to reestablish what was instituted in the garden all the way back in Genesis 1. Man was to rule the earth. And man forfeited that. Jesus Christ was the faithful one that, in fact, will be the, the chief ruler, the king of kings. Uh, he was faithful. So he is the one that has had the privilege of ruling, and everyone else that is faithful will rule with him. But this is a privilege. This is one of the rewards. And here is uh, the promise to this particular, particular church. Now, it uh, looks like it's an allusion to an Old Testament passage, and it probably is. Uh, one thing to note there is the reference there to the nations in the Greek as well as in the Hebrew. Whenever you see the word nations, it's usually in Greek, ethne, it can be translated Gentiles. And it would be appropriate in this context. Uh, Gentiles will be in the kingdom. We'll see that as we work our way through. So part of rulership will be over nations, or maybe a nation, or maybe uh, more than one. 
uh, we can't imagine the, uh, the the promise, the 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 uh, the greatness of this promise. Uh, I liken it to maybe not so much. We would not probably feel the same privilege of the present administration, but if you think of a president that you admired or one that we felt that we could align ourselves with, either a Reagan or a Bush, if he knocked on your door and handed you a personal invitation to be a part of his administration in this world, uh, just think of the tremendous privilege that that would be. And if it was for nothing more than just serving with him as part of the administration, well, there's going to be a political system in the kingdom, Jesus Christ ruling, and there are going to be positions such as what we have alluded here. And there's other passages that allude to the same thing. So uh, magnitudes greater than a Bush or a Reagan inviting us to be a part of that administration this is basically a promise that we will serve if we are, in fact, faithful. Verse 27, and he shall rule. It expands this authority. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is Christ. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. So there, there's going to be some things in the kingdom that uh, Jesus is going to take action towards in terms of uh, those that are part of the kingdom. Not probably initially, because everyone will be a believer and probably everyone will be somewhat in tune with Jesus Christ. But as the kingdom progresses, when we get to chapter 20, I'm going to show you from primarily the Old Testament, a lot of... uh, Political aspects, a lot of social aspects, a lot of economic aspects of this kingdom age. All of those things that are spoken of in the prophets and in the Old Testament that predict what the kingdom will be like. Chapter 20 20 of the book of Revelation doesn't give us a lot of detail, but it assumes that we understand and have that background of an Old Testament understanding. Remember, you want to think Jewish. This is the Jewish kingdom. This is what Jesus offered the nation of Israel. This is what Jesus postponed as a result of his rejection. The Jews anticipated a fulfillment of all of those promises. And one of them is a promise such as this, to rule in that kingdom in a political sense. And uh, we have opportunity to appropriate that for ourselves. So this rulership is going to involve political things like uh, dealing with issues, breaking things into pieces. <laughs> uh, you can use your imagination in terms of why uh, that would be there in terms of rulership. As I also have uh, received authority from my father. So we will share authority and rulership with Jesus Christ. And I will give him the morning star. Now, that's a reference to himself, a personal association, a personal relationship. It would be like uh, a Reagan saying, I'm going to give you an office in adjacent to the Oval Office. Uh, This would be analogous to what is stated in terms of giving us the morning star, giving us himself. He is the bright morning star in other passages, Isaiah fourteen twelve. No, no, that's an allusion to Lucifer, who was called a morning star. Uh, he's been replaced. Uh, let's see, where's the 
would it be Daniel 12:3, where we're alluded to as stars, bright, bright and shining. So that's the challenge. In verse 28, I will give him the morning star. 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Somewhat reversed, the call is after the challenge. In the other letters that we saw, it was before. So that's the church at Thyatira. The essence, they tolerate apostasy, correction, holding fast to those things that are in fact positive. Ephesus lost his first love. Smyrna is a suffering church. Pergamum is the compromised church. Thyatira is the apostate church. Sardis begins chapter 3. And to the angel of the church at Sardis, no further comment needed. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Again, the allusion back to Genesis chapter or Revelation chapter 1. Seven stars are interpreted in that passage. The angels, he has them. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So it begins immediately into a complaint. Before we get there, I forgot about the circumstances and location. We have Thyatira. And next in line, down the road. Let me see how many miles that is. About 53 or so miles. Sardis. An adjacent valley. This is all real fertile areas in terms of agriculture. And agriculture would have been the main economic generator in that area. Uh, The different map, the Google Earth map, Sardis. There's not a whole lot of excavation at Sardis. The main part is this gymnasium here. And there's a lot of area that could be excavated that hasn't been done yet. Uh, This is what's available. There's also an Acropolis that is not seen in 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 the slide there. But this is somewhat the boundary of the archaeological site today. There's a small village adjacent there, close by. This is at the Acropolis Temple of Artemis, another temple of Artemis. This one is not as impressive as the one at Ephesus. Artemis was very common. There were several temples of Artemis in several locations. This is another one. Just another shot, same temple. This is about a couple of miles away from that other site that I showed you. Temple of Artemis again. Back to the site, the main site, this gymnasium. Now that dates much later than the first century. That's about all you can see. That's about it. So we have the circumstances, we have the correspondent in verse 1 that we already looked at, we have a complaint. Also in verse 1, you have a name that you are alive, but you are 
dead. This is a spiritually dead church. So this is a summary. Spiritually dead with a small remnant. Not completely dead. That's why it's addressed. There's hope. I have a complaint in verse 1, and that moves to verse 2 and 3, the correction. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. That's the remnant uh, which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Uh, Pretty straightforward. Doesn't use the word repent, but basically uh, the allusion to being dead. Wake up. Uh, Verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. There's the word repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Similar to what we've already seen. Part of that is a reminder of his return. So, verse 4, we have the challenge. Uh, You could even include perhaps part of verse 3 as a challenge in terms of waking up. But you have a few people, that's the remnant, a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, the allusion to white garments is associated in the book of Revelation and in the Old Testament to salvation, or we're clothed in the whiteness, the cleansing of, of redemption, the forgiveness of sin, and they will be with him in white garments. Verse 5, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So, restored fellowship and the Lord acknowledging the repentance by the names that he gives. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Another call after the challenge. So Sardis is probably of all of the churches, the one that is in the worst shape. Lost love of Ephesus, suffering church of Smyrna, the compromised church of Pergamum, the apostate church of Thyatira, the dead church at Sardis. With a little asterisk uh, with a small remnant. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. And the idea here is they will receive full forgiveness. In other words, whiteness of garments. There's garments are soiled. Uh, minimal reward is, is exactly the point there. In fact, there are some Christians uh, that will be a part of the kingdom who do not have any reward. Uh, they will suffer loss, as First Corinthians three indicates. Now, what that last loss is uh, probably is the possibility that they could have re- the rewards that they could have had. They've lost them. And I think that during the kingdom, there is going to be probably regret 
for the way I lived and the, uh, the rewards that I could have had that I lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, deadness, spiritual deadness. There's probably a lot of uh, a large proportion of unbelievers in this church. There are probably members and others that are totally carnal, as you suggest. They may be believers. And there's a small remnant that uh, are called upon to repent. So that's the least positive of all of the churches. Well, both of them are a state of deadness. Spiritual death is, or spiritual death is the ultimate. In other words, the unbeliever is dead unless he received Jesus Christ and new life. He remains in a spiritual deadness and goes into the lake of fire. I think both, probably. Uh, like I said, there's probably unbelievers as members, but there's probably believers that are regenerated, but they are spiritually dead. They're basically useless. Carnally dead. Is that a term? Is that what you guys use? Your phrase? Unbeliever. Yes. Okay, that's what I'm trying to describe. Of a believer. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm describing here. And, and I would say that probably here there's both. There's both. Who are regenerated, well, they may have at one time, but at least they have progressed or regressed to a point that, that uh, they're useless. They're, they're, there's no spiritual fruit. And there's probably no interest in studying God's Word. There's no interest in walking. They may be in attendance. They're there sitting. They're in the church. Uh, churches are filled with people like this. No, I, I'm not talking about losing salvation. No, not at all. Uh, but you can lose your vitality in terms of usefulness and effectiveness and fruitfulness, all that. Uh, I think you can get to a state of spiritual deadness in, in a carna- carnality sense. Does that, does that clarify? Yeah, you do mean it as right. <laughs> well, I do see two things. I, maybe I'm, we're not communicating. The unbeliever is obviously not going to go to the No, no. The unbeliever, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Sorry about that. It's afternoon. I'm about to fall asleep. <laughs> Philadelphia. Let's take a look at the circumstances at Philadelphia. And by the way, feel free to interrupt when I'm not clear. Uh, I want that, the whole purpose here is to try to make things clear. And if I'm making them less clear, I, I want to know about it. Circumstances. Again, on a map uh, further down the valley, 
Philadelphia, same Valley of Sardis, just about, I think, like 35 miles, somewhere in there. I was looking for the number. Twenty-five, twenty-five miles, about south or east, south southeast. Within in first century time, uh, walking distance. Everything in the first century you reached by walking, generally, or some animal. Thyatira, Nersardis. We're progressing eastwardly now. Uh, we progressed north, and then from Pergamum, now we're moving further east. Oh, Philadelphia, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, there's virtually nothing to see at Philadelphia. I've just got a couple of slides here. Uh, the site is in this location, and there's no excavation that's been done there, so there's virtually nothing that I can show you. They believe there's remnants of a theater, and they believe that there's a theater on that hillside there, and that's about all you can see. Probably the least that there is. There's an Acropolis there, but there's nothing virtually there to see as well from the Acropolis. That's the city uh, surrounding the area. Pretty good-sized city. Not huge. Uh, this is Byzantine. This is pretty characteristic of Byzantine architecture. This the small brick. When you see this small brick like that, that's Byzantine. 300, 400, 500 A.D. Church of St. John. These are columns. So this was a significant church. This is quite an impressive archway here. This would have been an archway that would have gone something like that. It's quite an entrance. That's about all you can see on the site there. In terms of uh, the background there, uh, this was a gateway city to the east. Goods and products were transferred through this city. Uh, some people would stop there. And usually uh, those that were traders would go along the route through Philadelphia and then proceed further into points east. Place with lots of earthquakes in its history. The city was destroyed in 17 A.D. along with several other cities. Tiberius uh, rebuilt the city. Uh, pretty unimportant otherwise. Much like Sardis, Roman controlled, obviously. Commercially, as I said, uh, in the agricultural realm, that was the primary economic generator. Culturally, Greek in culture, Greek influence, spoke the Lydian language. Uh, because of the earthquakes, there were apparently that's probably one of the reasons there weren't any remains of structures of any significance. And most of the people lived outside the, the city because of earthquakes. Dionysus, the god of wine, was worshipped there. He was the chief god. And 
to this day, there is a nominal church in the city next to Philadelphia. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. He is the holy one. Now, this is very. This is a positive church, but I think the implication here is a continued focus on a holy life. So, the holiness of the Lord is, is emphasized in the, uh, the address here. He's also true, so that would be encouraged as well. Continue in your faithfulness. And he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut. Probably the illusion in the church is he's going to open a door. He has the key, so he's going to open a door for this church. And what he opens, no one can shut, is what he announces. He can also shut doors, and no one can open. He's the one that says this. I know your deeds. Again, he knows all of their ministry. Behold, kind of an attention grabber. I have put before you an open door. There it is. Compliment. Verse 8. Open door, probably of opportunity. A lot of the commentators suggest an open door uh, of missionary activity. Missionary opportunities. Colossians 4.3, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word. That's probably what... Christ is opening up for the church at Philadelphia. This is Paul praying uh, uh, to the church at Colossae. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. He's confined, but God is going to open up a door for Paul. And in the church at Philadelphia, God has opened up opportunity. And maybe as people are traveling, there's opportunity for evangelism, and as people have received Christ, they can send off these travelers on their journey east to have a greater influence beyond the boundaries of Philadelphia. 1 Corinthians 16.9 For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That's Paul. Something similar for the... Philadelphian church. So an open door. Because you have kept or because you have had because you have a little power. So this is was not a big powerful church. And have kept my word. They've been faithful and have not denied my name. Uh, and the implication is As always, there's always obstacles. If you want to do God's will, uh, there'll be either external or internal obstacles within the church or outside of the church. Uh, This is faithful. This is a faithful church. No complaint. 
Behold, I will cause those instead. There's kind of condemnation of those that would oppose. Uh, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. So Judaism was an influence. They're not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. So there's no complaint. It's a complaint against an external influence. But it's not to the church. Beginning verse 10, they're still challenged because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also, in fact, this is a tremendous passage. This is a tremendous promise. We as premillennialists use this passage. The context of this passage is to this particular church. And I think appropriately, I think it also is a promise to those that are members of the body of Christ in general. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Uh, We could make a case from this verse, along with several others, that uh, the church is kept from the very time frame of uh, the tribulation that in fact is coming. And I think he spells that out in more detail as we read further will keep you from the the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. This is the worldwide tribulation. Interestingly, that it's addressed to a New Testament church and we're 2,000 years later. But it's an allusion to something that's never really been fulfilled. And... Associated with that is this will be a time to test those who dwell upon the earth. This will be a severe time of testing. This is all of chapters 4, actually 6 through through 18 of the book of Revelation. Verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Another allusion to his coming. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. Uh, So... An encouragement to continue to persevere, continue to uh, be faithful. Verse 12, he who overcomes, there will always be obstacles, there will always be challenges. To the overcomer, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will go out from it, or not go out from it anymore. What do you think that's an allusion to? Why is that a significant promise to the church at Philadelphia? What did we say in terms of the circumstances? It's not unusual for tremors, earthquakes, shakings. (laughs) They were acquainted with this. The city was destroyed in their history. They were always aware. So it was also a a fear little tremor, you're wondering, uh-oh, we're going to lose everything on this one. Is this the big one? Uh, the, the promise here, oh, you're going, to be, you're going to experience stability that you have never experienced in your earthly 
ex existence here in Philadelphia. Uh, I will make him a pillar. Uh, there were few pillars in Philadelphia. Those that had historically been built were leveled as a result of the earthquakes. They are going to be stable. They will be pillars, high, tall pillars. No fear of earthquakes. They will stand out. In the temple of my God, uh, again, there, there will be a millennial temple. They would be pillars. Now, that's an image, uh, probably an obvious one. In other words, he's not going to make them literal pillars. <laughs> I think you can gather that from the context there. Uh, in other words, they, they will be prominent. He's using the imagery from their background to convey the idea that they will have a prominent, a stable, a secure position in the kingdom. And he will not go out. In other words, when you feel the tremors, you don't have to run out the door to make sure the roof doesn't collapse on you. He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God. So, an, a special identification. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my, my God and my New name and my and my new name. A new name is given to them. This is millennial. This will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. The allusions here is the to uh, the millennium. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. So that's Philadelphia, uh, positive church. Any comments before we move on? Faithful with great opportunity. Okay, uh, I don't know if I want to get into the hour of testing. Preterists uh, view, obviously, would put it in the first century, and it would primarily refer to individual testing. Post-tribulationists see the church going through a portion of it. And they would emphasize that God will preserve believers during that period of time. Pre-tribulationists use that as a text that supports the idea of the rapture. So it's just a difference of interpreting this particular verse. Okay, they're faithful for divine, have divine approval, spiritual opportunity, final justice, unconditional love, sovereign protection. If we had more time, uh, these are mainly applications that I was drawing from the passage when I taught this before that we can apply personally. Uh, I think it's a, a, a sense, a, a good sense of security when we, we know that we are walking with the Lord and we have a sense of well-being, divine approval. I think it's a dreadful thing that... To, uh, Many people to, to, to feel they know enough truth and they know that God is one that disciplines and they're not walking with him. And there's just an instability there. That's what some of the illusions here is a stable situation. And that only comes from divine approval. And it has spiritual opportunities because you're faithful. You have opportunities. 
There'll be final justice, unconditional love, sovereign protection, eminent relief, future rewards. Those are the seven churches. We're not going to look at uh, Laodicea. We'll do that tomorrow morning. So let's skip over that and turn to chapter 4. Any comments on this before we move on? The New Jerusalem, that's that's actually, a, the, the, yeah, chapter 22, uh, 21. Right. Okay, so the new city comes down at the end. It's the new heaven and the new earth. Mm-hmm. So this person gets that name in the millennium. Is that right? Uh, it's, it, it's hard to distinguish. It almost seems on some of these... The images, at least a couple of them, seem to be like the the paradise. That seems to be an allusion to chapter 22. And this one also, the New Jerusalem coming out of uh, heaven, that's chapter 21, which is after the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, But I think during the Millennial Kingdom, you'll have that name of the new city. So it's maybe... Yes. All of these rewards are... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anticipating consummation of all things. Possibly, although I, I find it hard. To, uh, I tend to see the millennial kingdom as a very special time where rewards above and beyond salvation are given and received and enjoyed and we participate in the whatever those rewards are, primarily ruling. Then I, I tend to see the eternal state, 21 and 22, as kind of more equalized. In other words, this is eternity, and we don't have positions of authority over others. We don't have inequality. Uh, so I've got a little problem with that. I mean, I need to revise that some, because there seems to be some rewards that uh, allude to both periods. Communist. <laughs> I'm a. I don't <laughs> a what? Yeah, she better be careful. She's not working the professor anymore. There is, there is going to be a disparity in the millennial kingdom. I'm not 
sure of that. Yeah, and, and I'm not real familiar with themes teaching, so. But. Okay. Now, also keep 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 this thought in mind as well. In terms of the millennial kingdom, uh, we'll get there. We're not there yet, but um, the church will be there in resurrected bodies. That includes the most carnal, genuinely believing, genuinely regenerated Christian with no zero with zero rewards. We will be in the kingdom. In resurrected bodies. So how we learn, I think we'll learn into eternity because we'll never be able to exhaust who God is. So uh, it's easy for me to conceive that during the kingdom, like what you said, uh, there'll be learning and experiences that uh, fill the gaps that we miss here. And, and yeah, including, including all of us, yeah. Because none of us live the perfect, totally sinless Except maybe Lindsay, but other than that, <laughs> the rest of us stumble over words and can't pronounce them, can't write them, and all that stuff. Anyway, uh, yes, yeah, because we have a new heavens and a new earth. Second Peter seemed, uh, in terms of a chronology, Second Peter. Uh, Three seems to be after the millennial kingdom. Okay, uh, let me introduce the next section. I've already given you kind of a, a general outline of the whole book in a three-part. I see three divisions in the book. The first division we've just completed, I've entitled that the revelation of, or the, the vision of Jesus Christ among the seven churches. That was chapters one, two, and three that we just completed. Now, beginning in chapter 4, we have that significant break that Jesus himself in his chronological or his temporal outline makes a distinction. And uh, in my outline, I make a major distinction here as well. I see this as beginning a second division in the book of Revelation. I combine the, the two temporal breaks that Christ had into one uh, and I. Now, I think looking back on it, you can see how they're, they're closely related. Two and three are closely related with chapter one. And I think the main argument for what I'm saying here in terms of structure and arrangement of material is the quote just continues. It doesn't stop in uh, verse 20 of chapter one. Jesus is speaking throughout and he doesn't stop speaking until verse 22 of chapter three. So it's kind of continuous. The Lord revealing things and speaking. Plus, we saw each of the churches when it described Christ as the correspondent, as I was using that little phrase to or that word to describe uh, Christ, description of him 
all relate back to chapter 1. Every single one of them. So there seems to be a close relationship between the two. That's why I outline them together. But beginning in chapter 4, I make the major break again with that first phrase, after these things, and that is very, very similar to what Jesus spoke of in chapter 1, verse 19. So you ask the question, after these things, just as we mentioned in chapter 119, after these things are obviously in the context, after the things pertaining to the church age, or after these things relating to these seven letters to the seven churches. So, temporally, and now I think topically, structurally, we have a different section. We have a break. So, beginning in chapter 4, and I would run this division all the way through chapter 18, and then I have a third division, if you remember, beginning in uh, chapter 19. I I call that the consummation by the Lord Jesus Christ. This section on your outline sheet, you'll notice this is the tribulation from Jesus Christ. Chapters uh, 4 through 18. The first subdivision of this broader division I see, and I've titled it the Seven Seal Scrolls. That kind of ties... Chapters 4 through 7 together. At least in my outline, I include chapter 7 in this seventh seal scroll. Now, the seven seals are the first of the major judgments. But before we get to them, we are introduced to them by a vision that John sees, or at least maybe two visions if you want to separate them out. The the vision that we see in chapter 4 and a vision that he sees in chapter 5. That kind of introduces what we will uh, talk about concerning this book or this scroll. Probably more a scroll than a book. So... The next major subdivision in the outline, A there, is this seventh sealed scroll. In that, let me give you an overview. This is kind of the outline. So, number one in your outline would be the origin of this seventh sealed scroll. It's a heavenly origin. That's four and five. That's what we'll try to get through the rest of today. Next... We have openings, and if you can tell, I'm using O as my alliterative (laughs) key here. Sometimes I stretch it and probably should break away, but it works in this case. The openings on earth and the opening of the scroll, that's chapter 6. And I see how chapter 7 is related in that uh, I see it as the outcome on earth and in heaven of some of the results of the openings on earth. Does that make sense? 
Now, a key to interpreting a very important observation that you want to make right off the, the, at the beginning, at the, at the start. You want to make sure, notice in verse 1, after these things I looked. So John is seeing, very visual again. And behold, a door standing open where? In heaven. A key to understanding the book of Revelation beginning in chapter 4 through the rest of the book. Make sure you are aware of where the vision is taking place. John will tell us. And where is the location of of, uh, chapter 4 at least? This is a heavenly vision. The heavenly visions are different from the earthly visions. In fact, they're in great contrast. We're going to see that as we we look at them. Uh, You will find uh, kind of this pattern. You're going to see visions located on on earth, and you're going to see visions located in heaven. And just a brief kind of overview here. We have the first vision, chapters 4 and 5. Beginning with four, the vision in heaven, and it continues in chapter five. It doesn't change till you get to chapter six, where the vision unfolds on earth. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as it were, with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, he sees this white horse. And if you read in the context, it is an earthly scene. So you have to keep these in mind. And even in chapter 6, in verse 9, we have another little scene that is portrayed there. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underlying the altar. And if you look at the details there, it is probably a heavenly altar. So it alternates back to a heavenly scene, verses 9 through 11. And then beginning in verse 12, back to what's going on on earth. And I looked, and when he broke the sixth sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. Where do earthquakes take place? On earth. That's why it's an earthquake. All the way through chapter 7, verse 8. So in chapter 7, verse 8... Notice how it begins in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, so all of verses 8, or uh, chapter 6, 12 through 17, that's an earthly scene. Chapter 7 starts, it's a different scene, because he says, After this I saw four angels, notice again, lots of angels, standing at the four corners of where? Four corners of heaven? No, four corners of the earth. So it Still continuing an earthly vision. It's a different vision, but it's still on earth. But notice in verse 9, the vision changes. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every tribe, etc., etc., standing before where? Now, we know where that throne is because we identified the throne in chapter 4. And that was a heavenly scene. And as you read through it, the context uh, supports the idea that uh, what you're looking at in chapter 7, verse 9, through chapter 8, verse 5, is a heavenly vision. 
So keep track of what's going, where you're, where, what, what John is seeing, where they're at. It'll help you interpret. And then chapter 8 all the way through the end of chapter 9, uh, those are trumpet judgments on earth. And it goes on. Chapter 10, that's a heavenly version, a vision, including 11.6, 11.7, it shifts. So it kind of alternates back and forth, back and forth. But make sure you uh, keep track of that. Uh, last part of chapter 11, into part of chapter 12, the heavenly vision. Chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, earthly vision. Uh, some more. And on to the end of the book. Okay? So we'll do that. So in chapter 4, this is clearly uh, John sees something and it's a door. In fact, in the Greek, behold, a door. The way it's, Because it's, it, in the New American Standard, it translates it a door standing. The word standing is not in the Greek text. Uh, it's an attempt to capture uh, the tense of the verb there. It's in the, uh, the, the perfect tense. So it's not just a door that's open, but it's a door that kind of is open and staying open or it's standing open. That's why the translators insert that little word standing to convey the idea that this is kind of a, a set thing that John sees. Now, the door is not what's important is what he sees this door. Uh, in other words, his eyes now uh, are open to be able to see things that. Others would not be able to see. He's seeing things that God is now revealing to him. And how that happens, I, I have no idea. I don't know if it's just a mental thing or whether it's actually a visual. I'm, I'm inclined to take it a little bit more literally and, and, and think of it in terms of God opening up the skies and he sees this door. And visually, as he looks, he's really seeing these things, not just thoughts in his mind. So, a door open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. Well, what is in view here? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So this is a significant shift in the book of Revelation. He's going to see things. It's, it, it's reminiscent of verse 1. He's going to be shown things. He's going to see them. And they're very visual, as we've already seen. Uh, so the after these things is reiterated at the beginning of the verse and at the end of the verse, indicating a, a significant change here. Well, what is going on here? We have a lot of discussion in the commentaries when it says come up here. Uh, some hold that uh, John is just a symbol representing the church, a symbol of the church. This viewpoint basically says that this is the rapture in the book of Revelation. What do you think? Think there's support for that? Or do you think it just slightly goes a little bit beyond a literal interpretation? That's my conclusion. I think it goes a little bit beyond. Now, when we get to chapter 6, I'm going to give you a little Jewish background. I, I, I think this is just Jewish here. I, I don't think the rapture is pictured here. 
um, there might be an analogous coincidental, well, not coincidental, but uh, simultaneous, maybe that's not the best word, um, the corresponding experience that the church experiences, but I don't think that's what John is experiencing. This may be a private rapture of John, but John lived on and died. So it's not a rapture experience for John. Okay? So I, I don't think that it's a symbolic picture of the rapture. Similar? He wasn't allowed to talk about his, but, mm-hmm. but he, right. he went. Right. Right. Now, and I can understand where this interpretation comes from. Uh, we want, I mean, it's all about us, remember? <laughs> it's all about us. We, you know, the church needs to be here somehow. We want to be mentioned here, so where do you put the rapture? Well, Jews could care less about the rapture in terms of Old Testament. In fact, that's a mystery. The rapture is a mystery, is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, we are to think Jewish. Uh, this is not a Jewish concept. So, it's not surprising that the rapture would be omitted. And I, I don't see it here. Uh, I think it's reading into the text something that is not there. Uh, another view is that John is really raptured. Well, if he's raptured, he's also brought back, which uh, that's not even analogous to uh, the, the rapture. Uh, probably the best view is this is just John's vision. He's, he sees something and the invitation come up, uh, whether it be in visual form. Uh, at least what John is recording here is what he sees. So it's an invitation to, to partake of what God is going to reveal through this open door. So this voice, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. This kicks off a series of several visions to the end of the book. And it begins where everything begins. It begins with... Everything begins in heaven. Everything begins in God and everything emanates from him. So this is the first thing that he sees. He sees a vision basically of God himself. Uh, One of the things that I like to emphasize here, because I think it's a main theme of the book of Revelation and main theme of Scripture in general. uh, There's an emphasis on God sovereignly working here. And what we would obviously conclude that he's sovereign over all things that take place in heaven. He is sovereign. And if he wants to open a door that Paul or John or anyone, God can do that. And he can give us a glimpse of what's up there. He is sovereign over it. And now he's going to give a sovereign picture of what goes on that we cannot see. Now, speaking of the rapture, I think this would be the place where we would expect preceding chapter 6, which we'll get to. This is introductory of chapter 6. Chronologically, if John and if the Holy Spirit chose to reveal or mention the rapture, this would be where the rapture would be. You see the distinction I'm making? I don't think it's a reference to the rapture, but this is where it would be, so it's normal that people would try to fit it in here. Uh, The next event for the church is the rapture of the church. And 
Probably immediately after that is the Bema, the evaluation at the Bema seat. Uh, and we probably are in view of in this passage. We'll get to that. Or at least we're represented before this throne. So the first thing right off the bat, we have this opening in heaven and God is sovereign open, uh, over it. He's also sovereign over revelation. So John is going to see things that are going to reveal things new. Things never seen. Now, others have seen this throne. I think uh, this is probably the same throne that Ezekiel saw and perhaps Isaiah. But there's new insight here. There's other things that are not revealed elsewhere. God is sovereign over revelation. God is also sovereign over history. We're going to have a new um, series of events in history that will take place that have never taken place and that are yet future. And this is part of what's going to be unfolded in this new section or subdivision rather. So God is sovereign over all these realms. Notice we have a repetition of that word that we've already seen before. I will show you what must, there's the little day again, take place after these things. Just as we saw it to introduce the whole book, now as we get into a new section, it can, this is one of the contexts where I think divine necessity uh, is the meaning of the term. In other words, these must take place because they're on the time frame, they're on the schedule of history that God has preordained before the foundation of the world. These things must and will occur. Uh, that's a note of divine sovereignty. That's why he's sovereign over history. They're future. They've never taken place, but they're just as certain as if they already have happened. Notice again. Immediately, I was in the Spirit. John's a charismatic <laughs> and I think he is in the Spirit in that same sense. This, we talked about this already, so I'm not going to give you all of it again. But basically, he was in the Spirit at Patmos when he saw that vision. I think in the Spirit in a prophetic sense in that he, his eyes were open to see things that in the normal and the natural he would not see. And again, if somebody were standing right next to them, they would not be able to look up in the same spot in the sky and see the same things that John saw. In his epistle, he often used dated without the article to mean some sort of sphere. If he uses it for love, mm -hmm. way of life. Right. And, so that's and this is the dative here. In the spirit. Yeah, in selective mm -hmm. Right. Which yeah. Is what you just said, yeah. Uh, the other exam or the other locations at Patmos uh, in heaven, and he's going to see judgments now, particularly chapter six. 
Let's see, I have scripture references for these somewhere. I think I gave them to you before already, didn't I? Anyway, they're not that important. You can look them up. Look, look them up. I think in chapter 17, I think that's the location. Again, he's in the Spirit. It occurs four times in the book of Revelation. He's on a mountain in the Spirit. I think these are unique. These are different. Uh, and the fact that they're just uh, attention is called to them uh, indicates that this is not just a normal filling of the Spirit. Everything in the book of Revelation is, is, is different, unique, and unusual. So this in the Spirit, I think, is a unique experience. And again, the commentators differ on that, but that's what I think the context best supports. Paul said he didn't know if he was in or at, you know, whether I, he really didn't know. So, John is saying he knew it was mm-hmm. spiritual right. happening. Mm-hmm. He did not physically go. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, that's, what, that's what he's saying. He's at least seeing things that he normally could never see. I'm inclined to not think so. I think he saw something in heaven. That's the, that's the point of him saying in a spiritual state. Right. right. I don't know. Ask Paul. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the main thrust of uh, the passage... The focus here is what he sees. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit and behold a throne. A throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. The term throne here occurs... 63 times in Scripture, and most of them in the book of Revelation. There's 48 times in the book of Revelation. So, what's that? uh, Three quarters or so? Yeah, 76% to be precise. 13 times, which would be 21%, or one-fifth of them are in chapter 4. So that's the focus here. God's throne. Now the question, and again we'll see a lot of different views on it. Is this an eternal throne that God continually sits at? It's heavenly. Um, And it's hard to distinguish thrones in heaven. So I'm not going to discount that it could be an eternal throne. Uh, Certainly heavenly. Some emphasize that aspect. Uh, Christ will be present. We'll see that when we get to chapter 5. 
So that might be a distinction between the eternal throne and what is in view here. Some see, uh, and I'm inclined to see, this as a special judgmental throne. This is the governmental, uh, legal throne, if you will, for judgment. Because this is what is introduced in chapter 6. The place where God will pronounce judgment and send agents to effect those judgments. So John sees a throne standing in heaven and one seated on the throne. Is this the same throne of Acts 7.49? Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. Uh, this is a quote out of the Old Testament. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? This is a reference back to uh, Solomon. Or what place is there for my repose? What throne was that? I tend to think that this is a judgmental throne or a throne where God is going to effect his judgment. So God is sovereign over heaven. He's sovereign over revelation. He's sovereign over history. He is sovereign in reigning. He's going to rule. And part of ruling is the beginning stages where you judge. He's going to be sovereign over destinies as well. And a lot of that it will be seen in the next few passages here. And then finally, he's sovereign over judgment. The one on the throne. Let's look at this description. Again, we have a scene that is indescribable. One that... Uh, John does the best that he can to try to picture what he sees. Verse 3, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. Now, in our experience, a jasper stone is not very valuable. In fact, pretty common. Uh, what I think is in view here is more a stone that would be clear, more like a diamond, in other words, it's, it's sparkling. It's, it's more like a diamond. Uh, the word in the Greek text, yaspis, more crystalline, more clear, and possibly even a diamond may be in view here. Uh, considered uh, one of the most precious of all stones. Probably a picture of his glorious splendor. The glory of God is in view, I think. So we have descriptions here of probably aspects of the person seated on the throne. Also, like a sardius, which was blood red, which may be an allusion to his wrathful judgment 
So glory and splendor and wrath and judgment is what John sees emanating from the throne. And there's something else here. Sardius, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Uh, well, he's he's using them like uh, I think he I think he's using them more. Are they similes? Yeah, like a jasper. That's the best he could describe. In other words, the best that I can try to convey. This is what I saw. It's like this. These are similes. Yeah, he didn't see stones on that throne. And then he sees a rainbow, which uh, most of the commentators suggest uh, gracious love, reminiscent of Genesis, reminiscent of the, the rainbow, where God graciously provides it as assurance to Noah and his family that he will never bring a flood in terms of judgment. Oh, did he? Right. Okay. Good. So read more on it on commentary by Morris. So who is on the throne? Uh, at least the father. And a case can be made that uh, the son is separate and, and we'll see him in chapter five. So I tend to believe that it's the father that's in view here. It'd be a multiple colored, and it's around the throne, reminiscent of uh, the physical rainbow. So, a variety or a composite of colors. Uh, and, and I'm not even saying that that's what he sees, all these colors. It's, it's like a rainbow. Uh, these visions... How do you describe something? How, how do you describe a personage that's eternal and, and glorious, and you're seeing something out there? Uh, and how do you describe when you, what you see? And God apparently revealed Himself in a way that looked in the in the manner that John is trying to reveal here. It's like an emerald in appearance. So greenish is probably a prominent color. Or maybe the background. Next in the passage. Now we're going to have things. Uh, the throne is the focus. The throne is the center. And everything emanates around it. Things are going to come out of it. Things are going to be around the throne. The focus is this throne and primarily the personage on the throne. So, verse 3 is kind of the focal point, the center of it all. And now, around, notice it says around, uh, verse 4, verse 5, from the throne, verse 6, before the throne. So, now, everything associated with the throne. 
First of all, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Well, if you read the commentaries, you find out again there's all these suggestions as to who's in view there. Let's just kind of summarize some of them. A lot of them, I've got a list of 13 different uh, different views that are just off the wall, I think. Uh, give you an example. 24 ruling stars in heaven. Who are they? Um, uh, an answer to the 24 stars of the Babylonian astrology. I don't know who they are. That doesn't add any clarity to, to meaning here. 24 patriarchs listed in line of promise seen in Genesis. Okay. Why would they be there? What are they doing there? Great heroes of the Old Testament. 24 of them. Can you list them? <laughs> Adam. I guess you could come up with 24 of them. Uh, 12 tribes of Israel plus 12 to signify the ascension of the Gentile church. Uh, I don't think we need to go too far uh, with that. I, I, but anyway, there's a lot of strange views. I've got a list of 13 of them. Uh, all the saints. The reason, reason this view, the, the, the most predominant viewpoint concerning the church, if you, if you know your ecclesiology, um, there's different views as to what the church is. Are you, are you aware of different views as to what the church is in terms of makeup? I'm sure you've been taught. Uh, I'll remind you. Uh, most believers believe the church is in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. In fact, most believers would include Adam as a member of the church. And it's all about us. You know, it, so, you've got to have the church in the Old Testament. Covenant theology doesn't make a distinction between Israel and the church. Covenant theology basically teaches that uh, the Old Te- Israel is the Old Testament church. And the church in the New Testament is the New Testament Israel. There's an equivalence between Israel and the church in covenant theology. And most of the rest of Christianity has a similar idea. It may not be covenant theology, but it has that viewpoint. Uh, That's just nothing more than an expression of that in this viewpoint, that it's basically representatives of the total church. And this view has variations. Some of them would say 12 representing the 12 tribes, 12 representing the 12 apostles and the church. Okay, so that's that's a that's a pretty popular view. Uh, Some limited to Old Testament saints. I'm not sure why they want to do that, but that's okay. Uh, Others even see them as not men. Uh, The word elders there is presbuteros, which is the common word in the New Testament for elders. So there's no tricky thing going on here in terms of interpretation or translation. Uh, Presbuteros is never used of angels, just like angelos is never used of pastors. So you're kind of stretching the usage of the word. Uh, Probably representatives of the church. Uh, 
this is why we would believe, I think, that before chapter 4, the rapture has occurred. And we are represented before the throne. Now, why 24? That's, that's a little puzzling to me. But maybe it suggests just fullness. Uh, number 24, a doubling of 12. But I think the term elder is the key. And if you do a word study on it, uh, there's basically three, three usages of the word presbuteros in the New Testament. Number one, it's a reference to a person that is older. So, you can call me a presbuteros. <laughs> uh, an older person. Uh, secondly, it had a more technical and specific meaning as one uh, from Israel, uh, a, a person that was a leader in the synagogue. That's an elder. And in the, in the New Testament, we have lots of references to the elders of Israel. The, thir- the third is another technical sense that the church took that Jewish title... And that is the uh, title that is used for uh, leaders in the New Testament. The spiritual leaders of the church are called presbuteros. And by the way, this is this is kind of a private little thing here, but because I'm well in the minority, there are no pastors in the book of Acts. Did you know that? There are no pastors in the book of Acts. There's an abundance of elders, and I, I think the, uh, the church office that the New Testament teaches is the office of elder. There's also a second office. What's that office? Deacon. Deacon. I see um, episkopos, translated bishop, as a synonym it's probably a Greek reference to the same office. That would be my understanding. The office of the New Testament is elders, and it's always a plurality, by the way, in terms of churches. I'm giving you a little of my ecclesiology here. Um, but the point I'm making here is, I think it the, the, the primary reference here, these 24 elders, these are representatives of the church. Okay. In the book of Acts, you will not find a single passage where it talks about um, poimen, which is pastor. I'm not saying that I think most conservatives would see an equivalence between a pastor and an elder and would use those words interchangeably. But there's no, technically speaking, an office of pastor in the New Testament. There's one reference to pastors in terms of men, and that is Ephesians 4.11, and that's in the context of uh, spiritual gifts. In other words, it's a function. Personally, I prefer to refer to leaders in a church as elders, and I would see them functioning in the capacity of shepherds, which is the same word, shepherd, pastor. Does that make sense? When Paul deals with the Ephesians, they're, what are they called? They're, they're elders. They're, he deals with the Ephesian elders. In that, he talks about shepherding the flock. That's their function. 
And I think the main function of an elder is shepherding, which would include teaching, which would include uh, protecting all the elements of shepherding. Just a minor thing. Don't forget about it. I'm a heretic. Just forget about it. <laughs> That's just my viewpoint. Um, so this idea of elders, uh, I see as representatives of the church. That They are before the throne. Uh, representatives of us is what I would, I would see. Let's take a break and we'll come back and continue in chapter 4.